it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, March 18th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday to all of you. Thank you for tuning in no matter the day. Monday through Friday, it's 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. It's also around the clock, including weekends, on the podcast side, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's our lineup today on the Friday edition. We'll get to our first guest here in just a moment. Leslie Marshall will be here in the next hour. We'll get a Democrat's perspective on a few political issues. Kennedy, our dear friend whose show I was on on the TV side earlier in the week. She will also drop by. I've got some sound to play for her to get her reaction, some interesting things being said by the White House press secretary. We will also chat with Joe Concha about the media, Hunter Biden's laptop, and that really, I would say, significant scandal ahead of the 2020 election that is finally being sort of admitted to in the New York Times and elsewhere. What are the implications? We will ask Joe about that issue and more all coming up. A reminder that here on the show, you can listen many ways. We prefer live on our affiliates or on the live stream, the Fox News app, Fox Nation. You can also choose Odyssey, A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. That's one of our partners. And a programming note, I'll be on the panel this weekend, Fox News Sunday. Check your local listings on your local Fox station. That'll be Sunday morning. Trace Gallagher will be anchoring in D.C., will be on set around the big desk. And I believe it's Howie Kurtz, Juan Williams, and Jackie Heinrich, I believe, would be the other panelists rounding it out on Fox News Sunday this week. We will see you there. Let's get right to our first guest. We began yesterday's show going to Ukraine and talking to Dr. Jeanette Neshwat, who is taking care of refugees in Lviv, Ukraine. This guest is going to talk to us about Ukraine and the military side of what's happening there. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, it's good of you to be here again. Thank you. Oh, delighted to be here, as always. All right. Give us the overview of where things stand right now we are more than three weeks into watching this war this horrific war unfold a lot of the evidence seems to point to uh, a bit of a quagmire to put it lightly for the russian forces i don't want to feel too optimistic or too pollyannish about that are the russians losing militarily well i think the, the way to describe it is uh in the north the battle for Kiev and the battle for uh, Kharkiv, that is stalemated. The Russians know it. Certainly the Ukrainians are benefiting from it. And what is happening uh, is the Russians are not able to get the operational momentum that they need to completely encircle both of those cities and bring all of their artillery to bear. And that's because their, their maneuver forces have not been able to defeat 
the Ukrainian motorized brigades, which are defending both of those cities and doing a great job at it. So what's happening is Russia is bringing additional forces from the Eastern Military District, where the largest amount of forces that are in the fight for Kyiv have already come from. They are now in Belarus and will likely begin to transition into the Ukraine uh, battle zone. And what the Russians are hoping for is that we'll be able to generate uh, combat power and momentum to be able to push through uh, the defending Ukrainian motorized brigade. Uh, also, will that work? Unit that I don't think so. Uh, based on the performance to date of the Eastern Military District, they are the, they are the worst trained of, of the Russian forces. And why would they ever give them the main effort as something that just astounds us. The second thing that's happening is Russia's best organization is the first tank guards army, and it's based in the vicinity of Moscow for obvious reasons. It has two divisions in that area. Elements of that organization have previously been in the fight, but they've been small elements in the vicinity of Kharkiv. We're now tracking that some of those elements are moved out of Moscow and are moving into that area and will be employed either in the battle for Kharkiv or the battle for Kiev. We don't know yet. We have to monitor their employment once they cross the border into Ukraine. Again, what they are attempting to do here is generate fresh new combat power to be able to, to defeat the Ukrainian motorized brigades that are, that are defending. In the south, guy. Uh, Maripol is under siege. There's combat in urban areas going on as we speak. Uh, they have deployed the 8th, 10th naval infantry off of amphibious ships and put them into the fight in Maripol. That is the best naval infantry organization the Russians have. And it's no accident that they're putting them into the Maripol fight, something they had not intended to do they intended to use them at Odessa, but given the fact that they haven't completed the siege of Maripol and taken over the city, that is why they are being committed as fresh troops in that fight as well. Sadly and regrettably, we do think that Mariupol will eventually fall, and the Russians then will have accomplished a strategic objective, Guy, of establishing a land bridge uh, <clears throat> from the Donbass region all the way to Crimea, something that they've had as a strategic objective uh, since 2014. And that will be, if and when that does happen, that will be the first major city in Ukraine that, uh, that the Russians have taken. We've seen reports of a counteroffensive by the Ukrainians to actually push the Russians farther back. That's mostly in the north, and at least some of the reporting that I've read has suggested that they've been at least somewhat successful in this counteroffensive. That has to be, I would say, energizing for the Ukrainians and probably pretty demoralizing for the Russians. There's no doubt about it. They've had some limited success. They've taken retaken territory in the north northwestern part of Kiev. Uh, these are suburban towns that they've conducted in these counterattacks. Now, these organizations, in our judgment, poorly led. Uh, they've got they're poorly trained. They uh, they don't have all the equipment that they should have. The Ukrainians have night vision capability, and they're using it. 
uh, conducting those counterattacks, and they actually have uh, an advantage over the Russians, uh, who in many cases are, do not have night vision capability with them, even though the Russians have been advertising for years that they have state-of-the-art night vision capability for, for all of their forces. And that is, while they have it for some of them, it's not in evidence that they have it uh, for all of them. But that is, when you have a law like this, the Ukrainian uh, generals have great instincts. They see the law taking place, and they say, let's get on the offense here. Let's conduct a counterattack. Surprise is an, an, a powerful element. It, it, for, it forces huge fear in your opponent when you strike like that, and they're not expecting to, to be hit like that. It's no wonder that they, they did have the advantage over these forces. So I guess as we look forward here, the Russians have been struggling mightily, and we've explained some of that. We've seen estimates out there of the number of Russian soldiers who have been killed already. Seven to 9,000 was the last number that I saw from our intelligence. I mean, that is a huge number. The amount of aircraft, tanks, and other vehicles that are getting blown out of the sky or blown up you know, on the street, uh, it's, it's really, the numbers are racking up significantly at this point. There have been generals, like high-ranking battlefield leaders for the Russians who have been killed. I believe it's up to four Russian generals who have been killed by the Ukrainians. That definitely has to take unto itself a toll when it comes to morale. There are some reports, I don't know how confirmed this is, that there are a lot of Russian soldiers who are just kind of abandoning their post, walking off into the woods, shooting themselves even in the legs to say, oh, I've been wounded, I, you know, I, I can't fight anymore. I don't know how widespread that is, but it, it strikes me as a total amateur at this that morale is a huge, huge factor in any war, but especially one like this, and the morale question has swung pretty decisively, at least so far, in one direction. Does that sound right? Yeah, I do. And, and there are definitely morale problems there. And one of the clearest indications of morale problems on a battlefield, and we're somewhat surprised to see it, is that Russia is not recovering their dead. And to do something like that is horrific on the morale of a, war, of a fighting force. Just to walk away from your dead and just leave it where they fell uh, is something that just be, eats away. At, it erodes the confidence and the will of the force when you're asking fellow soldiers to just walk away from their teammates. Oh, yeah, you're, you're literally you're telling your army, we view all of you as disposable garbage. Right? If, if you get shot yeah. dead, oh, well, your family's never going to see you again. You're going to sit there decomposing in some mass grave that the enemy's going to dig. That, that cannot feel very good. In the American military, and, and I know the American people are, are familiar with this because they've seen us do this, we take risk uh, with soldiers' lives to go recover our dead, not recover just somebody who's wounded, to recover our dead. We will not leave them behind, and we'll, we'll conduct a major operation that may result in, the, uh, in, our, in other soldiers being killed to recover uh, the bodies of our fallen teammates. And, and it's in our DNA and our culture and the soldiers know full well, no matter what happens, I'm going home to my family one way or the other because my, my teammates will never leave me out there. And, and that is a 
powerful, powerful mm-hmm. recipe for success. General Keene, I want to ask you about China. President Biden talking at length today with Chairman Xi of the Chinese Communist Party. A lot of speculation. Are the Chinese sticking with Russia? Are they in the process of starting to cut them loose? There are some tantalizing clues out there that maybe the Chinese are getting some cold feet with their Russian partners. What is your read on that situation? Yeah, I'd be careful going down that road. I mean, it's sort of wishful thinking. I mean, are they surprised by the the stumbling uh, Russian military and the fact that um, President Putin has become an international pariah and now is being accused of committing war crimes and he's a war criminal? Yes. Are they disappointed by that? Absolutely. Uh, And coming right on the heels of such a public partnership that was established at the beginning of the Olympics. Yeah, of course they're disappointed by that. But make no mistake, this partnership is serious to them. They value it. And President Xi is not going to do anything that would bring into question his judgment about that partnership and why it's important in the face of the National Party Congress meeting in the fall of this year to enshrine him for a third term, which likely means an indefinite term. So the the Chinese leadership and the Chinese Communist Party that surrounds President Xi, they don't want any indication that President Xi's judgment about that partnership is being called into question. So I doubt seriously um, if the Chinese are going to make any moves here to seriously accommodate the United States at the expense of their Russian partner. I mean, they might not come rushing to the aid of the Russians in this case, but throwing them overboard might be some wishful thinking in the West, and we should always be guarding against wishful thinking. Last question General Keene, and we played this soundbite yesterday. The White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki was asked about this strange distinction that the administration is trying to draw where they say it's perfectly acceptable and good for the U.S. to provide stingers and javelins to the Ukrainians because those are defensive weapons. But the U.S. government blocking or not helping to facilitate the transfer of MiGs, fighter jets, from Poland to Ukraine, well, that's different because those are offensive weapons. Here is that exchange at the White House earlier in the week, cut 16. Can you lay out for us why the administration sees MiGs as provocative and javelins and stingers as not provocative? Well, first, javelins and stingers are defensive weapons. Uh, MiGs or planes are offensive weapons, which are a different type of military system. I would say the other assessment that we've done, not through here, not through the White House, not through the President, from, from the Department of Defense, is to assess what is effective and what works uh, in terms of fighting this war on the ground. All right, General, I am just a layperson here. I don't have anything close to your experience. It seems to me that, yes, fighter jets can be used in an offensive way, but they also can be absolutely vital to defending the skies over your country, which is what the Ukrainians would want to do with them. I don't know why the White House is saying that they are almost like, by definition, an offensive weapon. Uh, Just your thoughts on that. It's such a lame and inaccurate response. I'm just stunned by something like that coming out of the White House. There are no offensive or defensive weapons. I mean, all of our weapons are used either in the offense or defense. So in this case, Russia invaded Ukraine 
which meant, means that every weapon that they're using is in the defense against an invasion, whether it's artillery, mortars, stingers, javelins, tanks. It's all in the defense, airplanes, etc. That is the reality of it. And if they and the Russians, who are, have the similar equipment themselves, they they are on the offense, except at times when the Ukrainians are able to conduct, you know, limited counter, counterattacks against them. So it's pretty inaccurate to say that this there are defense and offensive weapons. Right. Uh, There's nothing not. intrinsic, right? It, it sort of depends on the situation that you find yourself in, how you're using the weapons. They're not intrinsically defensive or offensive. That was sort of my gut instinct. I'm glad to hear that I was not way off. We've got to leave it there for now. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman at the Institute for the Study of War, senior strategic analyst here at Fox News. General, always appreciate your time. Okay, great talking to you and your audience, Guy. Thank you. Appreciate it. And we're just getting started on this Friday edition. It is the Guy Benson Show. Please stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Very interesting thread on Twitter from a BBC journalist, Will Vernon. Earlier, So they held a big pro-Putin, pro-Russia, pro-war rally at a stadium in Moscow. And it was packed. And everyone's cheering and waving Russian flags and all that sort of song and dance. And in fact, there was both. There was like music and everything. And Putin spoke, although it was weird. It seemed like his remarks were pre-recorded because mid-sentence in the broadcast, it awkwardly cut to something completely different which the Russians are blaming on a technical glitch. That was odd. But the BBC reporters who were there, and I guess they are operating at their own peril in Moscow, they were interviewing attendees who went to this big pro-war, pro-Putin rally in Moscow, and many of them refused to talk. When they were told, you know, we're journalists, we want to talk, they would cover their faces and that sort of thing. They seemed ashamed. Those who did talk, many of them said they felt compelled, pressured, or forced to be there by their employers. Many of them work for the government. So that is how propaganda works, what the Russians wanted the world to see versus what was really happening behind the scenes. When we come back, I want to play some audio from the governator. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here with me. So Arnold Schwarzenegger made a video, and it was directed specifically to the people of Russia. Schwarzenegger, of course, a huge 
bodybuilder, then a movie star, then the governor of California. And he has a big following in Russia. He is a superstar in Russia. He's a global superstar, of course. But he wanted to get a few thoughts to the Russian people directly. And because a lot of the typical channels are blocked off or censored, he was seeking various ways to get this video into the hands of everyday Russians. And we know, for example, Signal, which is an encrypted app, there have been a lot of views of this video, apparently, in Russia through that. People are sharing it that way. There are other ways that this video is being circulated. And what struck me about it was, uh, we won't play you the whole thing because it's nine minutes long. We don't have the time. But I want to play you a lot of it because Arnold, I think, really strikes a very thoughtful, respectful balance and getting some absolutely essential truths into the hands of people whose government is working very hard to make sure that they do not know what's really happening. And he frames it in a way that is not overly bellicose or threatening or attacking. He tries to empathize. He begins by telling this story about his family and his background and their connection to Russia. And then it picks up here in Cut 21. Listen. Now, the reason why I'm telling you all of these things is that ever since I was 14 years old, I've had nothing but affections and respect for the people of Russia. The strength and the heart of the Russian people have always inspired me. And that is why I hope that you will let me tell you the truth about the war in Ukraine and what is happening there. No one likes to hear something critical of the government. I understand that. But as a longtime friend of the Russian people, I hope that you will hear what I have to say. And may I remind you that I speak with the same heartfelt concern as I spoke to the American people when there was an attempted insurrection on January 6th last year, when a wild crowd was storming the U.S. Capitol, trying to overthrow our government. You see, there are moments like this that are so wrong, and then we have to speak up. And it's exactly the same with your government. I know that your government has told you that this is a war to denazify Ukraine. <laughs> denazify Ukraine? This is not true. Ukraine is a country with a Jewish president, a Jewish president, I might add, whose father's three brothers were all murdered by the Nazis. So there are, of course, you know, translations and subtitles for the many, many Russians, most who don't speak English. And you might object to Schwarzenegger's framing of January 6th or invoking that in any way. You know, there's no comparison in, in all honesty. January 6th was horrible, and I'm very much on the record about that. It's not the same as what Russia's doing to Ukraine. I think what he's trying to do there is say, look, I'm willing to criticize my own country and criticize things and speak up for what I see as the truth in my own country to buy himself some sort of some cred, if you will, with perhaps skeptical Russians. So I understand that. He goes on, and this is of course correct, to immediately go to the heart of the big lie that they're being told over there, that this is a peacekeeping mission and a special military action to try to denazify the leadership of Ukraine, which is absurd for the reasons that Arnold mentioned there. He goes on, cut 22. You see, Ukraine did not start this war. Neither did nationalists or Nazis. Those in power in the Kremlin started this war. This is not the Russian people's war. No. As a matter of fact, let me tell you, 
what you should know is that 141 nations at the UN voted that Russia was the aggressor and called for it to remove its troops immediately. Only four countries in the entire world voted with Russia. That is a fact. See, the world has turned against Russia because of its actions in Ukraine. Whole city blocks have been flattened by Russian artillery and bombs, including a children's hospital and a maternity hospital. Three million Ukrainian refugees, mainly women, children and elderly, fled their country. And many more are trying to seek to get out. It is a humanitarian crisis. Schwarzenegger goes on to puncture some of the additional lies, misinformation, propaganda that the Kremlin is feeding to a domestic audience. Cut 23. Because of its brutality, Russia is now isolated from the society of nations. You're also not being told the truth about the consequences of this war on Russia itself. I regret to tell you that thousands of Russian soldiers that have been killed. They have been caught between Ukrainians fighting for their homeland and the Russian leadership fighting for conquest. Massive amounts of Russian equipment have been destroyed or abandoned. The destruction that Russian bombs are raining down upon innocent civilians has so outraged the world that the strongest global economic sanctions ever taken have been imposed on your country. Those who don't deserve it on both sides of the war will suffer. The Russian government has lied not only to the citizens, but to its soldiers. Some of the soldiers were told they were going to fight Nazis. Some were told that the Ukrainian people would greet them like heroes. And some were told that they were simply going on exercise. They didn't even know that they were going into war. And some were told that they were there to protect ethnic Russians in Ukraine. None of this is true. I mean, he's speaking factually and very clearly and bluntly. And there are probably some Russians who are seeing this who don't really know the extent of the truth that he's telling. That the the Russian propaganda machine over there is working overtime to try to shield the Russian people from the ugly truths that would probably lead to even more disruption and dissent back at home. They don't want the Russian people to know how many of their countrymen are dying in Ukraine. They don't want the Russian people to know how their decisions are leading to a catastrophe that they can sort of feel at home, right, with all the with all the huge sanctions coming down, but also death to Russian soldiers, as I mentioned, a humiliation on a global stage, a complete pack of lies about the alleged justifications behind any of it. Schwarzenegger is just sort of taking a hatchet methodically to each of them. And he's not, you know, he's not talking with great flair, right? This does not feel like a dramatic actor's performance. He's just kind of clinical. He's leveling with people in Russia, telling them things that the Russian government wants them not to know. Cut 24, it goes on. The fact is that Russian soldiers have faced fierce resistance from the Ukrainians who want to protect their families and their country. When I see babies being pulled out of ruins, I think that I'm watching a documentary about the horrors of the Second World War, not the news of the day. 
Now let me tell you, when my father arrived in Leningrad, he was all pumped up on the lies of his government. And when he left Leningrad, he was broken, physically and mentally. He lived the rest of his life in pain, pain from a broken back, pain from the shrapnel that always reminded him of these terrible years, and pain from the guilt that he felt. To the Russian soldiers listening to this broadcast, you already know much of the truth that I've been speaking. You've seen it with your own eyes. I don't want you to be broken like my father. This is really powerful stuff. I hope, I hope this gets to millions of Russians. Putin is hoping it does not. And that if it, it does get to them, that they don't believe it. Cut 25. This is not the war to defend Russia that your grandfathers or your great-grandfathers fought. This is an illegal war. Your lives, your limbs, your futures are being sacrificed for a senseless war condemned by the entire world. Now, to those in power in the Kremlin, let me just ask you, why would you sacrifice those young men for your own ambitions? To the soldiers who are listening to this, remember that 11 million Russians have family connections to Ukraine. So every bullet you shoot, you shoot a brother or a sister. Every bomb or every shell that falls is falling not on an enemy, but on a school or a hospital or a home. I know that the Russian people are not aware of such things are happening. Arnold Schwarzenegger wraps things up with this appeal to the people of Ukraine. Cut 26. So I urge the Russian people and the Russian soldiers in Ukraine to understand the propaganda and the disinformation that you are being told. I ask you to help me spread the truth. Let your fellow Russians know the human catastrophe that is happening in Ukraine. And to President Putin, I say, you started this war. You are leading this war. You can stop this war. Now, let me close with a message to all of the Russians who have been protesting on the streets against the invasion of Ukraine. The world has seen your bravery. We know that you have suffered the consequences of your courage. You have been arrested, you have been jailed, and you have been beaten. You are my new heroes. You have the strength of Yuri Petrovich Vlasov. You have the true heart of Russia. My dear Russian friends, May God bless you all. Now, you might quibble with something here or there, but that was pretty darn close to pitch perfect in a lot of ways, at least from an American perspective. How it lands, how it hits over there, I don't know. But I pray that it lands and hits in a way that's effective to bring an end to this. Bloodshed and misery. Brutality being unleashed by some people in Moscow. Led by Vladimir Putin. And I salute Schwarzenegger for making what really feels like a good faith, thoughtful effort to do his part and leverage some of that credibility and fame that he has with the Russian people to bring a real truth bomb and do it in a way that is not hyperbolic, that is personal, and at times was also pretty humble. I wanted you to hear it. 
And now we'll take a quick break. When we come back, some domestic politics. Next week, a Supreme Court hearing upcoming for that vacancy that, of course, is looming. There's an interesting tack that the Democrats are already taking in telegraphing. I don't find it terribly impressive at all, and I'll explain why next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. So next week, there will be hearings for Judge Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson, who is President Biden's nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. Justice Breyer is retiring at the end of the term. They're holding these hearings. It's likely that she'll be confirmed. They just need 50 votes. I think she'll probably get 51, 52, 53, something like that barring some huge bombshell, but there will be tough questions asked, and there should be. This is a lifetime appointment for someone who will spend potentially decades shaping American jurisprudence, and in some cases, perhaps too many cases, having the final say on major political, cultural, and legal issues. And so even though it's just a apparently kind of like a, a clean swap, one progressive for another, There needs to be vetting, there needs to be scrutiny, and pointed, difficult questions, especially about someone's record, are not only appropriate, but necessary, essential. But predictably, already you've got activist groups and Democrats framing anything that the Republicans might do when it comes to accountability or tough questions as just a, a big exercise in racism and sexism. These are the... Similar tactics we see when there are criticisms of Vice President Harris, right? They want to use identity as a shield. This is why Biden promised to only nominate someone based on skin color and sex. He said we're going to exclude an entire category, every category except for one, within these immutable characteristics, and I'll figure out who that individual might be. But this is where I'm starting with sex and race and polling shows that most Americans didn't think very highly of that approach, but whatever it is, what it is, she's been nominated and she should now be judged based on her qualifications. And I think she's clearly qualified and her record. And one of the issues that Republicans are going to, I think, focus in on is some of her advocacy as a defense lawyer, some of her decisions that she's made as a judge Some of the things that she did as a policymaker on various uh, influential panels and, and commissions and that sort of thing. And some of it has to do with crime. The types of people that she represented on the defense side. And look, everyone's entitled. Everyone is entitled to a rigorous defense. That's in the Constitution. That's 101. I I don't think it's generally fair to knock someone because they've represented someone bad. The very worst people deserve representation. Now, what Republicans might say is, did some of this cross a line from you know, forceful representation into advocacy? Why did you choose these particular cases? Uh, why were these types of clients, for example, you know, terrorists? Uh, why was that of interest to you? I mean, ask the question, sure. There's a concern about sentencing guidelines and sentences meted out to sex offenders including sex offenders who've targeted children. Senator Josh Hawley has 
outlined a number of different examples where, in his mind, and I think probably to many Americans, child molesters or people with you know child porn convictions were let off easy by Judge Brown Jackson. Why? Why were the sentences lenient? Why was that the recommendation? That sort of thing. That is 100% fair game. But I heard today there was a huge meltdown on The View. The ladies of The View, they, they, uh, they only had three of them today. Apparently there was some weird snafu. Usually there's five people around the table. There's only three today. And uh, the IQ actually stayed exactly the same. There's no change. But they, they, the three remaining hosts today had a meltdown that these questions were even being raised at all. Very, very offended. This is the same that wants people arrested for saying things that they disagree with uh, and, and for bad takes that they might have, on, might have on Russia. So maybe these folks aren't exactly too keen on the Constitution to begin with. If they're like, oh, let's lock people up for bad opinions. But uh, they're, they're gravely offended that Republicans might ask these types of questions, and they were raging at Senator Hawley. And what's interesting is one of the top Democrats in Congress, in fact, the number two in the Senate, Dick Durbin, he is out there telling reporters that he's uh, very disturbed also by this line of criticism or questioning. He said, and this was quoted in political and Politico, rather, quote, I don't believe in it being taken seriously, talking about some of these charges and questions from Senator Hawley. He said, I'm troubled by it because it's so outrageous. It really tests the committee as to whether we're going to be respectful in the way we treat this nominee. There's nothing outrageous about it. It's questioning her record. Mark Hemingway says, oh, really, Democrats? You want to talk about... A respectful discourse in a SCOTUS confirmation hearing? Do you remember Brett Kavanaugh and what you did to him? Really? Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's our middle hour. On our Friday program, it's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com, Fox News contributor, host of this program. I'll be on Fox News Sunday this weekend. Check your local listings Sunday morning. And that should be enjoyable and fun. Trace Gallagher will be the anchor. Follow us here at the show on social media, at Guy Benson Show. That's the handle for Twitter, also for Instagram. Podcast, if you can't listen live between 3 and 6 Eastern every day, podcast is there on demand, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fox News alert. The Dow ends the day and the week on a high note, up 274 points today, closing at 34,755. We are joined now by Leslie Marshall, Democratic analyst, Fox News contributor, radio host. Leslie, good to have you back here. Happy Friday. Oh, happy Friday. Thank you for having me back. You bet. I want to just talk with you about your general sense of where things stand electorally with months to go, of course, still before the midterm elections. I saw a bit of what looked like maybe the start of a polling turnaround or maybe a bounce for President Biden after the State of the Union and then 
You had this war starting. And I think, look, I've got lots of criticisms of him, including a few for sure on Ukraine. But I think overall he's played some things pretty well. I think taking a backseat to Europe actually isn't a bad strategy here and letting them take the lead. There's been some things that I think I have uh, criticized on the air and praised on the air. And for a little while there, Leslie, the numbers seem to be converging back closer to even keel. But in the last few days, the last few polls, there's been once again a divergence and he's underwater in the average at 41% approved, 55% disapproved. That's obviously a very dangerous position for a president to be in when his party is, you know, on the ropes ahead of a of an election cycle. I just wonder how you're feeling about November as as a Democrat right now, and do you think there's a way to turn these numbers around? Well, that's a lot to unload, but yes, I'll try and answer and briefly. <laughs> um, uh, one. I think we see historically a bounce after State of the Unions for presidents, and it doesn't really hold on for a long time. So I'm not surprised about that. Um, two, uh, when we, you know, am I nervous about the midterms? Of course I am. Whenever your party's in power, you're nervous because, you know, historically you're going to lose, uh, you know, seats and you could lose uh, majority status and power. We see that go back and forth. Um, do I think some things can turn around? Yes, um, because as we're seeing from polling, it just seems to be year after year, um, voters become fickle faster. And, uh, you know, I say that because, you know, somebody may hate him on Ukraine today, and then they read something, a blog, a, you know, headline, uh, which uh, American voters are very swayed by, obviously, uh, and, you know, they, they change their mind tomorrow. Of course, there are always those voters that are going to hate him because he's a Democrat and love him because he's a Democrat, uh, depending on where you stand. But obviously the ones that really, truly stand in the gap and make up um, and often make the decision as to who is uh, going to win at the end of the day. Democrat or Republican and whatever seat in the House or, or the Senate and state races um, comes down to independence. Right. And, and um, I mean, his, his and, numbers with independence are bad, really bad. Well, they were bad. They went up. Then, then they went down, uh, went down. Look, am I, am I happy about things, where things stand? No. But one other thing you asked me is, can they turn around? And I think they can just based on my party's messaging. And, and to be very honest with you, even though I'm a Democrat, they're not listening to me. Okay. Um, because uh, you, you know, they, you know, I, I've said, I said in Virginia, right? I said in Virginia, it is not, uh, with Terry McAuliffe, I said, it is not about Donald Trump. Donald Trump's in the rearview mirror. You have to tell people what are you going to do for them. I think one of the reasons President Biden got the bump is because a lot of people believed that all of us Democrats really wanted to defund the police, which I cringed at. And I think I shared that with you, and you've heard me say on TV uh, when it first came up. So, yes, I do think with the proper messaging, uh, some things can turn around in certain races. Uh, but there are some races that are going to be very difficult for people in my party, especially for areas uh, that are more uh, red, more conservative, or that Trump uh, won and was favorable in and continues to be. Yeah. So your accent is New England, right? Yes. Are you from Massachusetts? I am. I, I yep. Born in Fall River, where Lizzie Borden cut up her parents. Uh, oh, actually, she was acquitted. Oh, Sorry. And uh, and, and uh, you know, grew up in the Boston uh, in the Boston area. Usually, I say okay. from Boston. Some people be like, "You're not from Boston," you know. And grew up in a town called Somerset. But yeah, I'm from I'm from Massachusetts. Okay. The reason I ask that is because I know that now and for some time you've lived out in California, right? Mm-hmm. So you yes, are I moved, from. I moved here at the end of 1999 into 2000. All right, so it's been it's, you've been in California for a minute, right? You're you're kind of a Californian now with the uh, I guess the relic of the accent from Massachusetts. But these are two very 
blue states, some of the bluest states in the whole country. I would say, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I would say that you are a liberal Democrat who is a little bit more pragmatic maybe than some other hardcore progressives in the party. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I'm definitely more of a moderate and a, and, and a centrist, absolutely. Okay, so the reason I ask you that is because one of the Democrats who's retiring, and you know, you've been at this a long time, you know how this stuff works. When one party disproportionately has their members streaming for the exits before an election, they're sort of looking for that, you know, that way out. I'm not going to run again. I want to spend more time with my family. I'm going to go get a job in the private sector, whatever. That sometimes gives a sense of where things are headed with the electorate, and we're seeing that play out right now with House Democrats. One of them, uh, her name is Stephanie Murphy, and she's from Florida. She was one of those majority makers in a tough district down in the Sunshine State when the Democrats had a good year, you know, uh, in, in recent cycles, she has announced, and this was kind of a, a pretty big red flag for a lot of Democrats, that she will not be seeking re-election in 2022. And she just sat down with Politico for a lengthy interview uh, yep, about, uh, yeah, about a lot of different things. And one of the things that she said is she has felt like the Democratic Party right now, including very much in the leadership in the House of Pelosi and company, they have been trying to, quote, Beat moderates into submission. And I just wonder, as someone who would probably align yourself more with the Stephanie Murphy side of the party than the squad side of the party, and you're looking at how things have been handled in the House and the Senate and how the White House is governed, I just wonder, I mean, that seems to me like a pretty significant admission on her part, and and I wonder how you feel about it. Well, she's definitely a different position uh, than I am. I've never run for been elected to Congress, so she has sure. an inside seat that I don't have. But I will say, as a, a Democratic strategist, somebody who does talk to people and you know is you know on the fringe uh, of these meetings uh, and conversations. Um, I really feel that the president with the State of the Union address made it very clear with a majority of Democrats stand, not just majority of Democratic voters, but majority of Democratic elected officials. Um, and, and, you know, you, you may have seen, you know, some of the squad, uh, even though they stood uh, to their feet and clapped, uh, cringe when he said not defund the police, fund the police, help them, you know. Um, and, and, and also to, to her point about uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, no, there is something that I don't agree with the timeline of what Speaker Pelosi did. And, and again, my opinion 100 percent, but I see Speaker Pelosi sometimes tolerating almost like a mom <laughs> the uh, bratty kids in the House uh, with the extremely progressive faction. And one example of that would be uh, infrastructure. And at the end of the day, what did she do? She goes, no, we're doing this now. You know what I mean? We're not, not, enough of the combo deal here. We've got to get it through. I feel that she should have uh, put the, you know, the, the gauntlet down sooner. Uh, she has the power. Um, I, I feel that what she Stephanie tries, Murphy, many what, of us try. Many of us try in the party to unite because we've seen what fragmentation does on the right when you have, you know, the Tea Party and then the Rand Pauls and the other Republicans. And I see what it does in, in, in my party, the Democrats. It's not helpful. It's not useful. It's not productive. But what Murphy's saying is she feels like the accommodations of the left and the the rising influence of the left within your party has been basically acknowledged and acceded to by leadership. Maybe not in every single case, but she said it felt like 
more moderate members were being beaten into submission where they were kind of being bullied around, said they're more no, scared. No, I know. I, re- I read the They're article. more scared of the squad that, and the base. I mean, that's her opinion of perception. I'm not in her position. Right. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't see that and I don't hear that. What I do hear is that they can't completely discount individuals who constitu- whose constituencies elected them to do exactly what they're pushing to do and a, a growing number um, of voters, especially young voters, um, are in line, you know, with, with that more progressive faction. One, two, some of the things that at one time were considered to be extremely, shockingly progressive, are 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 very much supported uh, by Americans and even Americans on the right. Fifteen dollars an hour, you know, uh, minimum wage. You know, a lot of things Bernie Sanders had put out back in the day that people thought, you know, was scandalous and radical is pretty much the norm now. Not just for my party, but for even people outside my party. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the radical ideas, though, have gotten your party into some significant trouble, and they, they misread. I would agree there. I would they, agree there. They misread the mood of the electorate after 2020. They said, oh, we've got these tiny little majorities. Let's try to jam through all this left-wing stuff, and I think that the, the clouds are gathering ahead of November as a, as a backlash. There's always, historically, as you pointed out, a backlash, but that backlash can be bigger and more impactful when people are really upset by what's happening, and that's the mood of the country right now. Last question, Leslie. Looking from the left side of things over at the Republican Party, there is a really interesting debate playing out among some conservative commentators and analysts these days about 2024 and Donald Trump. And would the party be better off uh, as him as the nominee again for the for the presidency or for him to run for the nomination but lose and get supplanted by someone else who might be more elected but you know he would have he would have gone through that process and been defeated or you know for him not to run at all and let someone else emerge with him sort of being an elder statesman uh you know within the party endorsing someone that's that's a big debate it's very early of course we're not even at the midterms yet but these are part of the conversations happening right now. I wonder what you think of that as a Democrat. Like, what is your rooting interest for your party or your perspective when it comes to 24 and, and the reemergence or not of Trump? Well, as a Democrat, I would love to have Donald Trump run as an independent. And <laughs> but, but I'm not sure. Uh, I do think that his ego can't handle not running. And I think if he does run in 2024, uh, it will be the end. Look, I'm not going to necessarily go to Vegas with this, but you guys can, you know, you got me on the record, right? I think he'll run in 2024. I don't think he'll get the nomination. Um, I think perhaps he would if Ron DeSantis stepped out. I think Ron DeSantis uh, has a stronger chance than him, even though I'm not a fan of him either, uh, as a Democrat. And I think Donald Trump has hurt and further fragmented uh, not only the Republican Party, but the nation from where I stand as a Democrat. I know many, many Republicans um, who may uh, on camera say they like Donald Trump, but, but behind the scenes there – hopeful that either he doesn't run or that he loses. They're concerned what's happened to the party, especially Reagan Republicans, uh, which you don't have to be that older back in the day to uh, still be. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it can hurt the party, but I, I don't think so, he'll get the nomination. I don't think he'll win. I think it's very hard because 2024 is a long way sure. uh, from when he won last, and uh, the world will change, and the demographics will change, the voters will change, and the parties will change. I no doubt about that. And did I hear correctly right there, sort of wedged into that answer that you look at the governor of Florida and, and you see him 
as potentially a pretty big threat? I, I see him as uh, I see him. Certainly, he's been a rising star among Republicans, and uh, he certainly is going to run for president. I would imagine, you know, if you just look at the things he's saying and where the way he's positioning things. Right, like if he wins, if he wins re-election in Florida by like seven or eight points or something big, what that that's got to be something of a statement, not just to Republicans but Democrats. I think you know they attack him every day. Is is part of that based on they're trying to get him early because they're worried about his viability? I think for some people, but I do think for some, it's it, it's really the attacks around things like you know, don't say gay, for example, and some of the legislation that people think really that's our priority, <laughs> you know? especially when that was being when that was being put forth. You know, when ICUs were filling up again. You know, we keep going up and down with COVID and with the numbers, uh, hospitalizations, and infection rates. Um, so you know, it, yes, there are some people that you know look at him and are concerned with him politically. I can tell you my criticism of him has been a legislation that he has backed that, that I feel is uh, prejudicial against members of his own state. Okay. Uh, and that is a conversation that we've had on this show and will continue to have, of course. But from the other side of the aisle, uh, that's Leslie Marshall with her take. Democratic analyst, Fox News contributor. Leslie, appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great weekend. You too. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Uh, Putin is trying to bait the trap so that uh, we go in, and that's the beginning, could be the beginning of World War III. Uh, Putin totally irresponsible using weapons that are not allowed under the Geneva Convention. Oh, I'm Guy Benson. That was Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Struggling. Yesterday on Capitol Hill, spitting out the word Putin, a few other things there. Uh, she's an interesting character, this Pelosi. She's been around a while. And one thing that she seems to be addicted to in recent days, months, years, is cringe. She is doing some very cringeworthy things and making some cringeworthy decisions. I saw that yesterday there were reports that Pelosi was going to read a poem for St. Patrick's Day and try to tie it in to Ukraine and like quote Bono or something. And some of my liberal Democratic friends were on social media like, please don't. That can someone stop her? This is not a good idea. This is going to be lame. And uh, no one stopped her. And it was cut six. I got this message this morning from Bono. In sorrow and fear, that's when saints can appear. To drive out those old snakes once again. And they struggle for us to be free from the psycho in this human family. Ireland's sorrow and pain is now the Ukraine. And St. Patrick's name is now Zelensky. Hmm. Okay. So that's what they went with yesterday. And that was, I would say, on the cringe scale of 1 to 10, maybe a 3. Wasn't good. I wasn't like, oh, yeah, great, great poem. Read it again, right? But it was like a three out of ten cringe. I would say higher up on the scale, probably a, maybe a seven, six or seven out of ten cringe was when she invited the cast of Hamilton to perform remotely in commemoration of January 6th. 
Remember that? That was this year. That was very strange. Like, oh, this solemn day and the insurrection. And now, here's Lin-Manuel Miranda. Nine or ten out of ten cringe was when she knelt with a, uh, with one of, like, the African garb that she, like, a kenti cloth. And then probably worse was when she thanked George Floyd for dying for the cause of social justice. Yeah, she's addicted to cringe. Nancy Pelosi, The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. On this beautiful Friday, at least in this neck of the woods, it is just gorgeous here. Clear skies, right around 70. Oh, you love to see it. It is the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free of charge every day on demand. And joining me now is honestly one of the top top 1% of people uh, ever, I would say. Kennedy, host of Kennedy Fox Business Network, Monday through Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern on FBN, uh, and just a dear friend all around. I was on her show this week. Now she's returning the favor. Uh, Kennedy, it is great to have you back here on the program. We have now spoken to each other three times this week, and I feel uh, just uh, blessed. I feel vindicated for those who have tried to keep us apart. It'll never happen. Yeah, they can try. The haters can try, and they will fail. They will always fail because uh, we will find a way, as we have here today. I do want to ask you, before I get to something a little bit more serious, I know that you were hosting a pretty significant St. Patrick's Day uh, extravaganza last evening. How did that go? What did it feature? I had some FOMO because I couldn't make it. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was pretty fantastic. Uh, (laughs) My niece stepped up to the plate. She had never uh, made a meal with meat. And I, I put her in charge of the corned beef, cabbage, and potatoes, and she absolutely knocked it out of the park to the point where Jimmy Fallon said it was the best corned beef he had ever had. Uh, we also had shepherd's pie, gluten-free Irish soda bread, and someone brought gluten-free shamrock cookies. And it was, uh, it was a feast. We had two types of Guinness, three types of Irish whiskey, and four types of hangovers this morning. <laughs> so hang on. Uh, two types of Guinness, this will definitely betray my ignorance on this front. I thought there was just Guinness, right? They pour it out. It's like the the consistency, or at least it looks like a milkshake. It's so thick. It's very dark. Mm-hmm. And then people drink mm-hmm. it, and some people really like it, and I don't pretend to like it. There are multiple Guinnesses or Guinnai? So there's stout and extra stout. So <laughs> um, if, if stout is... A chocolate milkshake, extra stout is a blizzard. Okay, I get that reference. That's a uh, that's a Dairy Queen reference. It sure is. Okay, I, I like that. Now see, now my FOMO is even worse because Fela was there. Oh, and he's gonna he's gonna lord this over me. Oh, I go to Kennedy's party. Where were you? That's that's what <laughs> Fela does. All right, I'll, we'll have to get him back. In fact, maybe we'll get him back next weekend. I hear there's a rumor that you might be coming to D.C., and we might be having dinner with some friends at a wonderful restaurant. So we'll see. I don't want to spoil anything. Just don't tell Jimmy. Uh, Kennedy, let's talk about COVID, because that sounds like fun on a Friday. Uh, I saw this Yay! clip. I heard. I saw this clip from uh, Jen Psaki at the White House, and she was kind of disputing the premise of a question that made me want to put my fist through a wall. Here's what it sounded like in Cut 15. 
the president, 79 years old, president of the United States, were to get COVID, might be more serious than uh, you know somebody in their 20s. Well, we, we don't know that, um, but we also know that COVID impacts people of all ages and uh, and a range of. But when we take what we do here, Jen, is not not exactly as you said. So I wouldn't agree with your description there. I would say we do take extra precautions. All right, Kennedy. I understand that not every person who's almost eighty would be. Not all of them are at more risk than someone who's in their twenties, but it is just so misleading to the point of being misinformation, I would say, to kind of suggest or hint, as she did, that, oh, you know, we don't really know if a 79-year-old's at greater risk than a 20-something. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's not even close. The vast, vast, vast majority of COVID deaths in this country are people who are senior citizens, and the number of people who have died in their 20s from COVID, thank God, is vanishingly small and rare, and to kind of still be kind of disputing that and saying, oh, it really hurts everyone. We are two years almost beyond that talking point, and yet it's still happening from the White House podium. Um, yeah, so that's incredibly irresponsible because what you're telling people uh, who are at higher risk and who do find themselves in various categories is that we don't know anything. It doesn't matter. You know, live like you're a 22-year-old on spring break. You know, it's like crash a rental car. Uh, well, no, what I, what, I, what I think they want is to force the 20-something-year-olds to live like they're 79. Like there's all this mixed messaging that I think belies the actual, you know, science here. And, to, you know, but to how, your yeah, point. But, and how she could utter the phrase like, well, we don't really know that yet. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, maybe we didn't know that in January of 2020. But in March of 2022, we know that conclusively. In fact, if there's anything we know, if there's anything in the world we know about the virus, it's that. Yeah, exactly. And we've known it since, like, the spring, like May or something, or June of 2020. It makes me so frustrated and I think it's part of the reason why, and it, our mutual very good friend Mary Catherine Hamm talks and writes about this all the time, the collective failure among so many people in our society when it comes to risk assessment, when it comes to COVID versus other activities, it has been just piss poor, shockingly bad. And part of the reason is this exact kind of messaging from the White House and David Leonhardt, who's one of these New York Times reporters, he's a very influential. He writes about COVID, and he actually has come under criticism from the progressive left because they feel like he has not been enough of a COVID sort of fanatic and safetyist. He does write stuff. I think conservatives criticize him for being late to the party a lot of the time, but like finally admitting to the liberal audience in the New York Times, hey, you don't have to be so neurotic about this stuff. Here's what the actual science says. He had a piece today talking about still some of the deep anti-scientific misinformation-driven delusions, particularly among very liberal people in this country. So one polling finding was that Leonhardt highlighted in the New York Times, 48%, so nearly half of people who self-identify in this country as very liberal believe that COVID is a, quote, great risk to children. And we know Kennedy, again, thank God, 
that that is not true. COVID is not a great risk to children. It is almost no major serious risk to the vast, vast majority of children that about half of the very liberal people in this country think it's a great risk. And among those who view themselves as very liberal, they are disproportionately white and high education. And it seems like some of the people who would say they're the smartest in our society when it comes to this stuff are some of the dumbest. Yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible what people are hanging on to, what they won't let go. And to your point, no, children are not at risk from COVID the way that older people are. Children are at great risk for overreaction to COVID. Yes. You know, that is that is still harming children. To and this day. We won't know the repercussions of that for years and years and years. Yeah, we're getting a taste of those repercussions, and it's already very ugly, and you're absolutely right about that. That is extremely well said. Kennedy, host of Kennedy, FBN, we love her. See you in D.C., we think, next week. Have a great weekend, Kennedy. We'll be right back. As we continue on this Friday, it's the Guy Benson Show. Still to come, Joe Concha up next in our final hour, the happy hour. Looking forward to that. First, I want to address a topic that has been a big controversy in the last 24 hours or so. It's a story that we followed a little bit. I've weighed in before. But there's this transgender swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania out of the Ivy League named Leah Thomas. And Leah, now competing as a woman, was on the men's swim team for three years at Penn and then transitioned to being a trans woman and has now been competing against female athletes and has been, for the most part, dominating, setting records. I mean, some of these races, these meets, she finishes like 10, 20 seconds before anyone else, just crushing the competition. And this is someone who extremely recently was competing against men and was sort of a mediocre collegiate swimmer now a world beater as a woman. And I think it's important to say right at the start, as I always do on this topic, I think we should treat people with kindness and compassion and dignity, no matter what. I do not want Leah Thomas to have a bad life. I want her to have a good life that is fulfilled and happy And I think that there should not be mean-spirited attacks against people in the trans community, certainly not any sort of criminal attack. We've seen violence. That is disgusting. I think we should show compassion to everyone. We should not discriminate or judge, right? Judge not. We've all got our issues. And look. Gender identity and sexuality, these can be very complicated things and phenomena. I understand that, perhaps in some ways, better than a lot of other people as a member of the LGBTQ community myself. And that's where I stop the letters, by the way, after Q. I know that there's a few different new versions where 
the letters keep going for like four or five more. And then there's a number. I think the number two shows up. Then there's like symbols. I I don't have the memory, frankly, to memorize the latest woke thing that we're supposed to say. So LGBT, occasionally I add the Q. That's it. The point is we do not need to mock or attack anyone for their identity. And I think a good way to go about life in general, and I'm not saying that I'm perfect about this at all, but it goes back to the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Try to be a good, empathetic, kind person. All of that being said, and that's all very important, where you really start to alienate a lot of people and you start to lose them, and I would raise my hand here on this, is when you start insisting that everyone congratulate a trans woman for beating biologically born women in sports when this trans woman has a bunch of physical advantages. I mean, the photographs from the ceremony, because Leah Thomas won the NCAA championship in the 500-yard freestyle yesterday. There's your NCAA champion. And I know the NCAA is moving to actually change the rules because of this farce that's been playing out. Her teammates have written letters anonymously. They've leaked to the media. It's just so patently unfair on its face. The photographs with her in the number one slot on the podium, just towering over these women. And there was one picture that I thought was especially telling where Leah is off as the champion in first place, off to the side, and then you had the women who finished second, third, and fourth, you would argue perhaps first, second, and third, really. They are all huddling together for a photo, and clearly Leah is not part of that photo because what's happened is grossly unfair, and everyone seems to understand it. I mean, Leah was interviewed, and this will get to my next point, at the meet, I believe this was ESPN, just listen to just a little bit of this interview. Leah, how did that performance measure up to your expectations coming into this meet tonight? I, I didn't have a whole lot of expectations for this meet. I was just happy to be here trying to race and compete as best as I could. Okay, so that's, that's plenty. And she did race and compete as best she could. And in fact, she could race and compete better than the women because she has much more muscle mass, bone structures different, the muscle twitch. I mean, this is why I think even, and this is a debate that's gone on for a while now, even if someone has fully transitioned, which involves lots of hormone stuff, but also surgeries and and all of that, even under that circumstance, I think there is still physically inherent biological advantages when it comes to elite performance in athletics. That is not and shouldn't be a controversial thing to say. It's common sense. It's also science. It's interesting how some of the people who love science the most, according to them, are willing to deny science the most very quickly, very angrily, when the actual science interferes with a worldview that they want to apply and inflict and enforce upon everyone else. Now, in the case of Leah Thomas, there has not been, according to her teammates, a full transition. So I think this is even more unfair. Some of her teammates have been quoted as saying 
that Leah Thomas still has male genitalia. And there have been complaints that in the women's locker room, sometimes Leah Thomas is sort of walking around naked as people do in sports locker rooms. And there you have body parts not associated with womenhood. Can I put it that way? And other reports suggest that Leah Thomas is still dating women, as she did when she was he. So the same genitalia, the same sexual attractions, that is an awkward situation in that locker room. And obviously there are people on the team and associated with the team who are very upset and also competitors from other schools. Like the the woman who came in second place has to be wondering, like, what else could I possibly have done? And everyone seems to get it, although Penn has been extremely, extremely supportive of Leah Thomas to the point of allegedly threatening the rest of the team. Don't you dare criticize her publicly. Don't you suggest that this is unfair. You might not have a place on the team. Our alumni network might not help you get jobs. Like, they have really gone to the mats to try to enforce this line of thinking that I think fair-minded people, including compassionate, pro-LGBT people, what they know to be true, which is completely preposterous, backwards, upside-down stuff, that Leah Thomas and everything that I just described about her is being crowned champion and celebrated as this trailblazing champion in women's athletics. And the fact that the NCAA is belatedly trying to sort of catch up and change the rules moving forward, I think is kind of the admission that what we all understand is true. This is not fair. This is not right. This is not women's empowerment. This is an affront against actual girls in women's sports. And Caitlyn Jenner, perhaps the most famous transgender person in the country or in the world, right up there, she has been very critical of this. Of course, she, back when she was Bruce, was a, an Olympic champion, a gold medalist, I mean, very famous athlete. She has been critical of this. And she is under attack from the woke, hardcore left, the radicals, the fanatics on this stuff. Pink News is one of these outlets that had a tweet. Caitlyn Jenner launches yet another disgraceful attack on trans athletes without a hint of irony, to which Caitlyn Jenner responded on her Twitter feed, no, I just had the balls to stand up for women and girls in sports. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show. Coming up, it's the happy hour. Stay tuned. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time for the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. One and all. An hour left till the weekend. Thanks for spending it with us. And hopefully every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. here on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Everything right there. Podcast included. It is free. 
It is on demand every day, including on the weekends. We have Bonus Benson, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. And we're actually going to go out with some friends on a boat a little bit later on, which I'm excited about. And guess what we have with us? Oh, yes, some long drinks. So I will be indulging just a little bit. And if you haven't tried it yet, you should. It's a refreshing citrus soda with a premium liquor kick. It is from Finland, but it's here in the United States, and it is growing by leaps and bounds because it's really good. And many of you I know have tried it. Some of you are like, oh, you wear me down. You mention it all the time. I finally saw it. I finally got it. And you're like, yeah, actually, it's really, really good. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. They're expanding. The four newest states announced this week, Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana, Nebraska, joining a whole host of others. TheLongDrink.com. Drink responsibly always, please. And it's 21 plus only, of course. Let's get... To our final guest on today's program, it's Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, media columnist for The Hill, media critic extraordinaire, and he's been busy recently because there's a lot to talk about. Joe, welcome back. Happy Friday. Why do I get the feeling that I know you have to wait legally until 21 to drink, but you are from Jersey, and we kind of have a thing about breaking that rule around 17 or so. So were you I, one of those people, Guy? I, I have no comment on that, <laughs> except to say, except to say honestly, in high school, I really did not drink. Like I, maybe pro, prom weekend, I might have had like a beer or two. I was not a party kid in high school. I did not drink. Things changed a little bit in college, but not really a ton until I turned 21. I wasn't one of those kids who was like super sheltered and very strict family. Then I went to college and went crazy. Had to go to the hospital or something because I had way too much. That just wasn't wasn't the way that I went about it. Uh, but I do enjoy an adult beverage. You know, nothing wrong with that. And I do enjoy a long drink. I would think in Northwestern, where it's you know very cold and very miserable, that what else is there to do but drink? But you concentrated on your studies now. Well, Chicago. I mean, Chicago. There's a there's a lot to do in Chicago. It's a great town. That's true. I will say, I never had a fake ID because uh, I know a lot of people get a fake ID, especially in college, so they can get into bars or buy beer or whatever. I never had one, although there was a bar just on the border of Evanston, Illinois, and Chicago, where they were just infamous for not really checking IDs or caring. <laughs> so I actually went there underage once, and I gave them my real ID, which said right there that I was like 19, and the guy glanced at it for half a second and waved me in. So I believe I didn't really do anything wrong there. I, I presented my true age, and then I was allowed in, and uh, in, then enjoyed my evening. I, I think that I'm in the clear, but if the police had shown up, maybe the, the bouncer would have been in some trouble. The irony is that because you have a young look to yourself, as I'm sure you've been told, that now you're, you're probably getting double-proofed when you weren't in college. So that, that's, that's uh, an interesting I, thing to talk about. One of the more embarrassing events on that front was I was living still in Chicago at the time. So I was like 24 or 25, and I got carted at a drugstore trying to buy, like, NyQuil. And I went to buy, I think, a NyQuil. I was working. Like, I'd been in the workforce for several years at that point. I wasn't feeling well. And I went up to the cashier, and she looks at me, and she gives me this look like I'm trying to pull one over on her. And she's like, I need to see ID. I'm like, why? She said, sir, you need to be 18 to buy this. I'm like, I am 25. And I was indignant. But now that I'm in my, I'm calling it last year of the mid-30s, 37, 38 will just wow. be undeniably late 30s, but I'm 37. 
I am grateful for the youthful look that I used to hate, and now I don't hate <laughs> so much anymore. I think that kind of makes sense. That will give you longevity in this business uh, where ageism, unfortunately, is a thing. So that, that, that's all good stuff. I actually had a fake ID. Uh, it was my brother's. So all oh, I did was yeah. memorize his info, and he looks probably at least somewhat like you. Exactly like me. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so that's, that's an easy one because some of the fakes that people would get away with, I mean, weak, weak, weak sauce. Just on principle, I would refuse to try to use it because I would feel embarrassed. Not that I would get <laughs> caught. I would feel ashamed my having friend, such a shoddy product. He used to actually a shoddy product. He, he literally, he was an artist, and he made this big uh, cutout of West Virginia. And then you had to stick your head behind this big cutout. And then this isn't the, the day of, like, Apple, you know, iPhone 13s where the, the pictures are perfect. You know, basically with a Polaroid, <laughs> you take this wow. photo, and then you're standing behind it. And uh, it worked for a bit uh, in College Park, Maryland, where they didn't care about uh, that sort of thing either. But uh, it, Are you it, a Terrapin? I'm a Terrapin, that's right. I did not know that. A fellow member of the Big Ten Conference now. Uh, so, yeah. For all things considered, I'd rather be playing Duke in North Carolina. A little more exciting than playing Iowa and Ohio State and Northwestern. But, hey, wow. you know, when the money is presented, <laughs> I guess you take it. And that's wow. that. Either way, my, my well, pool has been blown up completely because I was stupid enough to take Kentucky to win it all. I'm like, what the hell was I thinking, guy? Well, I think, I think everyone's bracket is in some uh, serious, serious trouble be- between yeah. Iowa and Kentucky on day one, right? So, actually, we've got a very fun soundbite that we'll play later, in fact, in the next segment here in the happy hour of one of the games yesterday that was uh, – it was a one-shining moment. Let's put it that way. And uh, stay tuned for that. In the meantime, Joe, we probably should talk about, you know, yes. uh, things other than fake IDs <laughs> uh, here on this Friday. I want to get your take, and we addressed it, of course, yesterday as well. The New York Times, in this long story about Hunter Biden, who remains under active federal investigation, in paragraph 20-something, they just sort of casually mentioned that, oh, yeah, that whole New York Post story about that laptop and the emails and the contents, that, uh, that all was revealed right before the election in 2020 and was suppressed aggressively by the mainstream media, by big tech, following orders basically from the Democratic Party and the Biden campaign. There's Russian disinformation. You had former intelligence officers all swearing up and down in a statement. Dozens of them, oh, yes, this is Russian disinformation. Actually, no, it it wasn't. There was no evidence for that at the time. Uh, It was real. It was authentic. The New York Post got dragged for it. They got banned from Twitter for days for publishing real journalism. And now the New York Times very, very belatedly, has decided to share, oh, actually, yeah, that was, uh, that was real, that was authentic. Here is just an example, a few examples, of Joe Biden at the time saying what he said, and most of the press just saluted, cut 17. 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. They have said that this is, has all the care. Four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. This is classic Trump. We have four days left, and all of a sudden there's a laptop. There's overwhelming evidence that from the intelligence community that the Russians are engaged. I still think that the stories from the fall about your son Hunter were Russian disinformation as near the like you said. Yes, yes, yes. I know you'd ask it. I have no response. No smear campaign. It's the last-ditch effort in this desperate campaign to smear me and my family. The vast majority of the intelligence people have come out and said there's no basis at all. 
Well, those intelligence people have egg all over their faces. They were doing the partisan bidding of the Democrats, trying to save their candidate and protect him in the final days of a campaign. I guess, mission successful, Jen Psaki was one of the other people calling this Russian disinformation. Now, of course, circle back is the press secretary at the White House. She was asked about it, and interestingly, she no longer has a comment. Cut 18. The New York Times has authenticated emails that appear to have come from a laptop abandoned by Hunter Biden in Delaware. Um, the president previously said that the New York Post story about this was a bunch of garbage and that it was a Russian plant. Does he stand by that assessment? I've pointed the Department of Justice and also to Hunter Biden's representatives. He doesn't work in the government. Ah, so she had lots to say about it when she was calling it falsely Russian disinformation, lying about it, saying that the media shouldn't cover it. And now she's the press secretary in the administration that benefited from that cover up. And she's clammed up and she'll refer you to others. There's no reason for her to comment. Joe, this thing reeks, and I think it is maybe the clearest cut example of why so many Americans do not trust the, whatever you want to call it, sort of like the elite cabal that in many ways runs the country. You got to love Jen Psaki. And one time at Bandcamp, I said it was Russian disinformation, but now I refer you to the Department of Justice. It's like, look, look, (laughs) the, the thing that really patently irks me on this guy, 50 former intelligence officers signed off on a letter saying this was Russian disinformation, including John Brennan, former CIA director who is now a national security analyst for NBC News, and then obviously James Clapper, yeah. uh, former director of national intelligence now with CNN. Right? They, can, they I, all can I point out, just to, just to jump in, both of those names that you just mentioned, credibly accused, like pretty black and white, of lying to Congress. Yeah. Right. And then they sign their names to this letter saying, oh, yes, this is also the the Russians, Russian disinformation. Pay no attention. That is used as the excuse from the Biden campaign to instruct the media not to follow the story. They all agree. OK, let's not follow the story. Let's throttle it on social media as well. I mean, it, it feels like it's really circular situation here where they're all feeding off of each other in pursuit of an ideological goal, a partisan goal. And I know this makes the Biden people look bad, although it was in their political interest to do this. They're at least the campaign of the guy running. It makes the media look worse, and it makes the intelligence people who put their reputations on the line on behalf of this actual disinformation, it makes them look worst of all, in my view. And, Guy, I read the letter again this morning, the open letter saying that this was Russian disinformation from those 50 intelligence officers. And you'll see they admit in the letter they had no evidence that the Russians were involved. But they just had a bad feeling in the pit of their stomach about it, and they decided to just throw it out there anyway. And then the media, like when you throw you know, anything up to a seagull at the beach, that seagull is going to eat it up. Don't verify it. Oh, it must be true. They're former right, intelligence officers, right? Fifty. There's 50 of them. And we heard that over and over again from Team Biden, immediately echoed by the media because they were working together. Almost like there's a word for it, like collusion, if you will. (laughs) Here's a montage. There's cut eight. This is the media, how they covered it at the time. Listen. He talks about Hunter Biden's hard drive. Uh, He talks about conspiracy theories. The whole uh, smear on Joe Biden uh, comes from the Kremlin. Most of those charges unverified. Charges so heinous, I'm not even going to say them. And he's in the midst of a scandal. He's not. And he's taking. Of course he is, Leslie. Come on. Baseless conspiracy theories about Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Do you ever wish you'd had Apple Care? Yeah, that would have been a good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, big laugh. And now even the New York Times can tell us 
yes, it's real. Yes, this happened. Yes, it was authentic all along. It was not Russian disinformation. And let's not forget, Joe, the substance here, which strongly suggests that there was a lot of very shady business dealings going on with foreign entities, including in China, and there are witnesses who have attested to this as well. I wonder, will the media, Joe Concha, finally give an expose on who the big guy really was and how much money he might have been getting circa, I don't know, 2025? Does that sound about right? That's that will happen when the Devils win the Stanley Cup this year. As a for you know, as as a fellow Devils fan, as you know that that is yeah, mathematically basically impossible at this point. Uh, look, we we heard a lot about collusion during the Trump era, right? But the real collusion happened between broadcast, print, and social media, right? Broadcast and print media, they made sure that they dismissed this story in the most pious ways possible. And then social media, if anybody actually tried to share it, like Kelly McEnany, the White House press secretary at the time under Trump, they locked her out of her account. They locked the New York Post out of their account, right? And look, when you look at this here, in the end, does anybody really believe, Guy, that the Biden Justice Department is actually going to pursue any charges against Hunter Biden? Because under the Obama-Biden administration, we had Attorney General Eric Holder, who said he was the president's wingman. That's an actual quote. You had Loretta Lynch, who met with Bill Clinton secretly on a tarmac in Arizona at the height of investigation to his wife. So if anybody really thinks that Merrick frigging Garland is going to simply, you know, not follow orders and pursue these charges against uh, or possible charges against Hunter Biden uh, and embarrass the president and his family in the process, uh, that, that ain't going to happen. So he'll get away with it and make $500,000 on paintings in the process, guy. Last point here, and I wrote about this a bit today at townhall.com. I feel like every single, if the media was worth its salt, (laughs) every single signatory to that memo of those 50 former intelligence officers, including, you know, CIA chiefs and the like, they would all have reporters on their doorstep asking for retractions, clarification, do you apologize, like pointed follow-ups. Hey, remember this? Turns out that you were wrong. That influenced an election. What do you have to say about that? Saki would not get a quick you know, deflection away. Go talk to Hunter. I don't know. This would be something that people would be asking about regularly and aggressively. But they're not going to do that, Joe, not just because they lean left and they're Democrats, but because accountability on this exact issue would implicate them, too. They were very much in on it, so the accountability is not appealing to them because that would be embarrassing not to these other people alone, but also to them. Last word. I'll leave you with the gold star as far as dismissing this story. It came from NPR, taxpayer money, okay? Yes. Quote, this is from the managing editor, Kelly McBride. We don't want to waste our time on stories that not really are stories, and we don't want to listen and waste our listeners' and readers' time on stories that are just pure distractions. And quite frankly, that's where we ended up. This was a politically driven event, and we decided to treat it that way. Again, they didn't pursue this story in any way or try to verify it in any way. They came to a conclusion that it must be wrong, and therefore it must be squashed. This is the lowest yeah. point that we've seen in our media. Malfeasance at its finest, Guy. Well, they were, they were proud of it. They were proud that they were ignoring a story based on what they thought they knew, and what they thought they knew was exactly wrong. And this is why a lot of Americans believe that there are a lot of institutions in this country, including the legacy press, that are deeply corrupt. And maybe you want to hold your breath waiting for some self-reflection and course correction. You might be holding that breath for a very long time, unfortunately. But this, I mean, just dead to rights. This is a scandal, and that is why we're talking about it for the second consecutive day with Joe Concha. Fox News contributor, columnist at the Hill. Joe, always appreciate it. We'll talk again. Enjoy your time in that boat later. I'm glad you're going on a bender to make up for your college year. So this will be fun. (laughs) Have fun. Yeah. yeah. All right. Appreciate it. Happy hour continues right after this on The Guy Benson Show. 
The Guy Benson Show. More next. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. March Madness has arrived. Thursday and Friday of this week every year is just such a treat if you're a college basketball fan with games on all the networks just constantly and buzzer beaters and all the excitement. Well, there was a fun little incident yesterday. It was the Indiana game against, who are they playing, St. Peter's maybe? And IU ended up losing somewhat handily. And at one point, the basketball itself got wedged on top of and sort of behind the backboard. And they tried everything. They got a referee standing up on a chair. They had a mop where they were trying to, like, get the handle and and poke at the ball. They couldn't reach it. And then someone had the idea, why don't we get one of these male cheerleaders to hold one of the female cheerleaders and lift her up as they do for their stunts? That would be enough. Two human beings could be enough to get the ball. And that's exactly what happened. It was hilarious, made even more entertaining by the TBS call like it was an actual play in the game. Cut 28. Get her up there. This is how you do it. (laughs) Give her the mob. No, she's got it. Oh, what a play. The cheerleader saves the day. And that's her one shining moment. Just this place is on its feet. Just amazing. The crowd's going nuts. The IU fans had something to cheer for. Not a lot yesterday, but uh, for that cheerleader, that was just a delightful moment. Although Martha McCallum, I saw, asked the question, why are the cheerleaders the only people in the building apparently required to wear masks? Not the players, not the fans, just the cheerleaders. That's just science, I guess. Mm. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Coming back right after this break. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's an extended home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to break it up into a short segment now and a longer segment next because there's some business here at the show that we need to get to in the next segment, the real home stretch. We'll explain that in a moment. But before we get to that, producer Christine was all riled up about something. I know, very out of character, right? She apparently has some gripes and grievances that she wants to air with War Wyatt who she is increasingly treating kind of with some resentment, but as her boss at the same time. And I think just openly airing these grievances for the whole country to hear is an excellent form of leadership. It's great management, definitely indication of a healthy culture here at the show. Uh, So, Christine, what is your issue with Quiet Wyatt? Just why why the clown minding his own business? That's the thing. I want to go back to that Wyatt, the why why the clown Wyatt, the nice Wyatt, the not... Uh, judging me on every booking and every segment like I'm just a disgrace to him. Oh, that that seems a little strong. And by the way, you should be used to it. You call your own mother Judgy Joyce. I think that's why it's triggering me. That's mm. something we can talk about next segment about, you know, mm. some issues I've had as a child. In, in the past, mm-hmm. yeah. Some yes. things that have haunted you for years. But I do have to say one thing. Uh, yesterday, because I have to run bookings by Wyatt, I uh, called down to the D.C. desk to run something by him, and he did not answer. And then he texted me, and he said, I'm here. Call me back. So I did, and he said, "Uh, I'm sorry I didn't answer the phone, but I was blasting out reading the Wall Street Journal. And I said, what what do you mean? And he goes, sometimes when I need to really concentrate, 
I put my headphones on and blast music as loud as it can to drown out anything else. And then I read the Wall Street Journal from cover to cover. And I said, what are you blasting there? Like Beethoven, Bach, what's happening? And he said, no, <laughs> he blasted Van Halen, he said, as wow. he's reading the Wall Street Journal. What is your go-to Van Halen song, Quiet? Well, I, that was just yesterday. And it just it's whatever comes up on my on my playlist. So that's what was blasting yesterday. Van Halen, I think, what, Jump? Jump. That's... Oh, that's a, a big one. Running with the Devil. I'm a big fan of that one. Yeah, Van Halen, very 80s. I'm actually a little, and, and like late 70s too, I believe. Jump being maybe their most famous song, even though it was out of character with some of their other rock. But you were blasting Van Halen, reading the journal, ignoring Christine. That's like your little private moment of zen. Even Cookie can't disrupt your peace under those circumstances. I get it. How does one concentrate reading? I mean, if I was to read the Wall Street Journal, and I don't, from cover to cover, I would feel like I would need complete silence, not listening to, you know, Sammy Hagar in my head. Some people need music to concentrate, even if they are reading or writing. I am not that way. And if there is music, if it has lyrics, that is extra distracting. Yes. But people's brains are wired differently, and in some cases, like Christine's, very differently. Wait, and but, that's, that's okay. But you and I are the same. You and I are wired the same, it well, sounds like. In this, in this one way. You were also complaining, and we have to break here, you were complaining that Wyatt, I guess, joined some friends at a bar for St. Patrick's Day but didn't drink, and you were shocked by this. But, like, he's war Wyatt. There's a war happening at any moment, there could be breaking news. He cannot be under the influence. He's just someone who takes his job seriously. Something maybe you should take some notes, Christine. I'm, I'm just saying. On that note, we've got to go because we've got a longer home stretch segment coming up next where Dan, the fourth member of our team, rarely heard from but not today, he has a lot of questions. He wants to channel his inner curious Christine, and he will do so right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Home stretch on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you all for being here. Happy almost weekend. We're almost there together. And this is the home part of the home stretch, finally. And we want to remind you before we get into the meat of it that you can catch the entire show every day, all week long, for free. Every segment, totally free of charge, on demand on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the newest member of our team really isn't that new to the show anymore. He's been here. How long have you been here, Dan? Months. Uh, six months, almost exactly. So almost half a year for Dan, two-a-days, who runs the board. He's our engineer, and he has fit right in here with the team. But he was mentioning the other day that there are some inside jokes or at least inside references that he hears from time to time. And they are baffling to him. He hasn't been able to pick up really on context clues what the hell we're talking about. And so you're all very familiar with Curious Christine. Here we have Dubious Dan, who would like to know a few things. And we figured we would give him an opportunity to air those questions. And then I would do my best, along with producer Christine, to bring him up to speed. And possibly some of you as well, if you started listening to the show in the last, let's say, six months to a year. And occasionally you hear references and you're like, what is that? This is maybe an opportunity to clear some of that up. So, Dan, we only have so much time here, but let's get rolling. Okay, well, thank you for letting me do this because I've been very, very curious. 
um, about a few things. To start off the list, I have hot dog costume. I think this is a reference to something with Cookie, but I'm not you, sure. You are correct. That is a very good, smart thing to surmise. Producer Christine can tell the story, except if I let her do that, we will run out of time for the rest of the segment. The short story version is... Back when she was working as a producer on a previous show, she lost a bet and had to wear a hot dog costume in the streets of New York and go around interviewing people or talking to people. And she talks about this as if it were a grave embarrassment, but she mentions it to basically everyone she meets and shows the photo of herself. So I think that not so secretly, she actually loves this experience. She reveled in it and she would like to lose that bet again and maybe take up, you know, a side hustle in Times Square or something, taking photos with people in her hot dog costume. Does that sound about right, Christine? Not really. I don't revel in it. I'm not I wasn't that excited to stand in the middle of Times Square with hot dogs in my hand in a hot dog costume and ask if anybody wanted my wiener. But I lost a bet and I always pay <laughs> It's true, Dan. I always pay my bets. You do not, actually. Yeah, I, of course I do. You do not because you still owe us French onion soup. I did. I did. I did. I had You did it. not, yes, and that's yes. a lie. Mm-hmm. And War Wyatt will march up to New York from D.C. and, I don't know, declare martial law or perform a citizen's arrest on you for that flagrant untruth. You still owe us that one for getting the thing about Hillary Clinton wrong. You need to eat French onion soup. All right, Dan, back to you. Well, so that was my next one was French onion soup. So that kind of explains that one. It was just a yeah, lost she bet. she predicted on the air in 2019, I want to say, that Hillary Clinton was going to run for president again in 2020. And I thought she would not. So we made a bet. And if Christine lost the bet and Hillary Clinton did not run for president in 2020, she would have to eat French onion soup, which she hates for some reason. And she never did. She did. has she, no, like we all know that she's lying. Uh, I hope, Christine, that your daughter isn't listening because I think we teach our children collectively not to lie. That's what her mother's doing right here. You need to eat French onion soup because you lost the bet fair and square. Dan, back to you. Okay, so this next one is just two words, and I've heard it thrown around a couple times, and that is truck driver. And I have no idea what this is a reference to. Want to take this one, Christine? (laughs) Um. I don't know. It was one of those home stretches where we went off on a tangent and Guy... That's not narrowing it down at all. I actually don't remember how we decided that I was going to be a long-haul truck driver Mm -hmm. shipping wine, right? Something like that. And you were going to... I believe this story, because this is is a deep pull, but I believe this story involved you being constantly distracted by children or hoping that there are children in passing cars doing the honk the horn oh, yes. like hand gesture. <laughs> and you were so obsessed with that that you would eventually jackknife this tractor trailer, spilling mama's juice everywhere, losing the company tons of money, and getting a bunch of, like, animals drunk. Right. I believe that was the, the gist of it. And you said you could ha- had a vision of me with a straw. <laughs> Just running around yes, running around like, well, it can't go to waste. It can't go to waste. Yes, the, there that is. Back to you, Dan. Okay, this next one is uh, time relevant because of Cookie selling her house. So this next one is Eyesore Lane. I've heard it a few times, and I would like an explanation. Yeah, so that is the street on which she used to live until this past Tuesday when she closed on that property and moved to a rental property to apartments. I have never been to Eyesore Lane. I was never invited, actually. 
But the way that it got that moniker from me was Christine got increasingly aggressive with her inflatables for various holidays where she would blow up eyesores on her front lawn. And, uh. you know, it's it's one of those. And look, some people like it. It is not my particular taste, especially if they're deflated during the day, which just looks bad, like a, like a dead deflated Santa and all of his massacred <laughs> reindeers. Like there was a drive-by shooting all day long, <laughs> and then they get inflated at night and whatever. But she said a few other people, for some reason, on that street were inspired by this decor choice, and they started doing inflatables. So I'm like, well, this is just eyesore lane altogether. Dan, you know how uh, some people become Instagram influencers? Yes. I have become an inflatable influencer. Once the 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 neighborhood saw how pretty and how festive my front yard was with inflatable deer, inflatable Santas, like the candy canes, all of a sudden, my next door neighbor has inflatable. Their so next door neighbor has an inflatable. You're saying that you're a Kardashian of inflatables. I mean, I'm I, I don't think it would just be me. I would, many would probably say that. Uh-huh. Has big inflatable the industry paid for anything? Like have you gotten any Benefits from this? Not yet, and that's Not probably – Yeah, but, you know, I don't – Still waiting on that one. I can't be bought, okay? That's another thing. Yes, you can. Hmm. Well, one follow-up to that. How long did you leave these decorations up is the question. Okay, so I'll take this one, Guy. Um, I believe holidays kind of flow into the next. There's really no break. So by the end of August, fall decor is up. By uh, November 1st, Christmas decor is up. Okay. Mm. By January 2nd, Valentine's, and so on and so on. This is a source of a great deal of disagreement on this show every year. And so imagine having gross Christmas inflatables assaulting your eyes like the first week of November. That's just insult to injury right there. Back to you, Dan. Okay. So this one was kind of more recent that I heard, and I just laugh looking at this on my list right now as mugged by a mime i believe it's in france or something <laughs> yeah this is also nature. in yes cookie as a child i forgot exactly how old she was but cookie 16 went to, I, all right so she, so she was a teenager she went with her school trip to france and on that school trip in paris she was robbed by a mime in broad daylight and it is as hilarious as it sounds. I am bringing... Or, or, or doesn't sound because, you know, mimes. I'm bringing awareness because, you know, you think they're cute, you think they're talented, <laughs> but they're going to come up behind you and steal your money. Yeah, so. they're, in, they're in an invisible box. Oh, no, I can't get out. Oh, wait, they're reaching for something. It's a gun. Give me your money. I just but they, to... but they, how do they How do they demand your money? Were they sort of like doing the money symbol, like rubbing their fingers together? Or did they just take it? Just took it. Yeah. I yeah. don't even want to go there because it was such a nightmare. I mean, imagine being in another country and being robbed by a mime <laughs> and having to explain this to your parents. And yeah. it's like three in the morning their time. It, I, I, don't, I don't know. You probably need to work through that with your various – you've got like a whole retinue of psychics and spirit animals and hypnotists and all those people, mediums. I don't know. Wanna... I have like – it's okay. I have a hypnosis instructor. I have uh, a psychic, an actual therapist, and a psychiatrist. It's not a ton of people. Well, and your spirit animal that you met during the hypnosis. My angel. Yeah, and you want to get a medium. 
So, I mean, the, the point is you've got a whole entourage of, you know, people and non-people who are helping, quote-unquote, Cookie here. Um, and maybe this is maybe this is the root of some of this stuff, your, your traumatic mime experience uh, in Paris. Back to you, Dan. Well, George was something I didn't know I needed to learn about, but apparently I did. So now we know that. Oh, that was a new one for me, too. Yeah. You and I learned about that one in real time together this week. <laughs> okay. So rounding off the list, I think this kind of is the last one here. Aerobics instructor. I know it has to do something with being a spy <laughs> mm-hmm. or something. It was kind of the first thing I heard when I started here. Yeah. And um, a long-running joke, so if someone can explain. Yeah, so no- notice just for the record, he has not asked about Carousel because everyone knows about Carousel. Christine's pony as a child that she rejected and had killed. And so... I think that I just wanted to like put that out That's there. That's just now you're lying. Now you're lying. I never killed the pony. No, the... You you didn't kill the pony, but you did sort of like the slitting throat motion with your finger and Carousel ended up in a landfill in Staten Island. That is that is where Carousel is, off in the great golden corral in the sky. But that was not the question here. The question was about the aerobics thing. So it's not aerobics instructor. This is an aerobics champion. So in the late eighties there was this, I guess, competitive aerobics competition show that was a thing for a while. You might see the gif from time to time of 80s people in aerobics gear, like all running out and clapping at the same time or like dancing in very elaborate uh, choreography and all of that. So we decided, because there was one who really looked quite, quite familiar. And I did some digging and I just came to the conclusion this was what producer Christine did early in her life. She was a competitive aerobics champion. And she presented herself as All-American. She was in these big performances that were aired, I guess, on national television back then. But this was part of her cover as an illegal, not in the illegal immigrants side of things, but what the Soviets used to call their deep cover agents, illegal agents that they would put into America fully briefed on how to act American, right? They were basically trained to totally assimilate in a way that no one could tell the difference between them and just a natural born and raised American. And so we believe that she was trained as an aerobics champion in Siberia or somewhere over there. She was a KGB plant. She came to America and was carrying out her espionage with a giant grin on her face while doing aerobics on TV. And I I don't quite remember how we came to this conclusion or whether or not the timeline fully makes sense because Christine is somewhere between the ages of 40 and 60 right now. And so like for, to, for her to have been a certain age back in the 80s, I don't know if the math works out, but that is the truth. Have you ever seen these videos, Dan? Do we have to send you? I have. I have okay. with the headbands on and the tights and all that. Oh, that the whole yeah, shebang. And I there's a, actually a very catchy song that they would all come dancing out to, as a matter of fact. And maybe we need to find that. In fact, maybe we can bump out with that if we can find it. And we're basically out of time. Was that your last question? That was it. I'm very enlightened now. I learned yeah. a lot, and a lot you know. more makes sense. Are you slowly edging further and further away in your seat from Christine? I'm against the wall at this point. <laughs> you are. You, your eyes are wide. Christine, do you have any last rebuttals or points to make? You have mere seconds. I, I don't think so. I think the only thing we were missing, but Dan, I don't even know how we got to that. But at one point, you envisioned me as some sort of criminal who hides in bounce castles. Remember? 
Oh yes, yes, and the police had to come, and they were telling. There was like a standoff. They were telling you to get out and come out of the bounce castle, and you refused. I, I don't remember the backdrop to that story. Maybe you can go back into the archive or just ask War White. He can go to his binders. He's got a file on all of us. I'm sure he can tell us uh, within seconds. He's got a very secure and efficient system. And on that completely normal and not strange note at all, we're done for the week. Have a great weekend. Enjoy. I'm on Fox News Sunday on Sunday morning. Back here on the radio Monday for more of the Guy Benson Show. Bonus Benson, GuyBensonShow.com. There's the song. Have a great night. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.